Thank you, Dave. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. And so as uh, Dave just read, we will be in Jonah chapter 4 this morning, starting in, uh, in verse 5. And so if you would uh, turn there in your Bibles or uh, turn there on your phone or whatever device you might have with your Bible. And as you do so, I want to uh, just kind of confess something to you. And that is that I think fireworks are overrated. Uh, I, now, I know that might get me in a lot of trouble. I know that it might be somewhat controversial because fireworks are like, uh, you know, baseball and apple pie. You know, they are a sacred. We're coming off the 4th of July and fireworks uh, and baseball and apple pie are kind of like the American traditions. But I also think that baseball and apple pie are also somewhat overrated. Uh, more of a soccer and cherry pie kind of guy. But anyway, back to, uh, back to, to fireworks. I think it's really interesting that, uh, that we have this sort of collective love of fireworks. I love the idea of fireworks. I just find the execution is always lacking. I think it's really interesting that uh, as a form of amusement that we basically subject ourselves to loud, sudden noises and blinding light. It's like giving my daughter a flashlight that's all you're going to get. And so it's basically, the, uh, uh, as a form of entertainment, we subject ourselves to the very thing that a SWAT team uses to stun a criminal, right? They just throw in a flashbang and a concussion grenade, and that's it. That's basically what fireworks are. You drive out, to the, out of the city limits, because you can't buy fireworks within the, the, the city. Uh, you go and you spend $100 on fireworks that don't fly as high. They're not quite as bright. They're not quite as loud or impressive as you hoped they would uh, be. Or you get a dud. But you're not really sure if it's a dud, and then you're, you play this sort of game where you're kind of like, should I go up and check, or is it going to blow up right in my face? Or you go to a professional fireworks show, right? And so you go there, and you get there an hour and a half early so you can get real good seats, so you can see the sky, basically, which you can see all around the world. And so you go to get a really good seat, you put down this blanket, you put up a, a chair, you, uh, uh, you, you bring out your cooler and all that kind of stuff. You sit there for an hour and a half. It's hot. It's humid. It's loud. Then the fireworks show begins. It lasts for 15 minutes. It's basically the same fireworks show that you saw uh, last year. And, uh, and then you have to pack up and go home, and your baby's crying, and it's dark. That's basically fireworks for me. And, and so, again, I love the idea of them. If you are just a particular kind of fireworks aficionado and you put on a show, uh, you have some land or you know a particular place, I'm happy to be proven wrong. But this is my thought on fireworks. The reason that I mention my disdain for fireworks is because that reminds me of our text this morning. That's what it kind of seems like uh, Jonah is doing. So Jonah has been disappointed. He has, uh, he, he has gone to Nineveh. He has hoped that God would destroy Nineveh. Uh, it seems as though God is going to relent. And yet Jonah goes out to the edge of the city. He puts up his little beach umbrella. And he sits down and he just waits. He wants to see, uh, he wants to see judgment. He wants to see a light show. He wants to see lightning and fire and brimstone rain down upon Nineveh. And just as I'm always disappointed at a fireworks show, so is Jonah going to be disappointed with what he sees because the real show is not what happens to the city, it's what happens to him. And so let's pray, and then we will uh, dive into the text uh, together. I want to ask that you would just uh, begin by praying for yourself, that the Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear, that he would be gracious and kind uh, to you. And then would you pray that for us as a, as a corporate body? Would you pray that for brothers and sisters and strangers across the aisle and sitting next to you? 
And then lastly, would you pray for me that the Lord would give me grace that I might be faithful to His Word. So Father, we ask this morning that You would help us to see the glory of Your Word, that we would see the glory of Your sovereignty, the glory of Your mercy this morning, and that we might be transformed that uh, as You are merciful, so we might be merciful. That's our hope this morning. We pray that Your text would work on our hearts. We pray these things because You're good and You do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in uh, verse 5. Again, Jonah 4, verse 5, which says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So just to catch us up on the story, Jonah is an Israelite uh, prophet, and, uh, and he is somewhere in Israel when the word of the Lord comes to him, tells him to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is this influential, significant city within the heart of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, if you know anything historically about Assyria, Assyria was this, this historically, horrifically cruel, violent, idolatrous people. Uh, Jonah does not want to go to the city, and so instead he flees towards uh, Tarshish. Uh, which is west. So he's told to go east. Instead, he goes uh, to the west. And, uh, and yet, God cannot be outwitted. God cannot be outrun. And so God sends a storm to stop Jonah. Jonah is thrown overboard as kind of a shadow, a picture, a hint of substitutionary atonement. And as he is sinking into the sea, as he is drowning, the Lord appoints this big fish to swallow him, some sort of sea creature. We don't know what that is historically uh, or biblically, but uh, some sort of sea creature that swallows him. Uh, Jonah then lives three days in the belly of the fish, and then the fish uh, vomits him up on the land. Uh, and uh, the word of the Lord again comes to Jonah, and this time Jonah has at least somewhat learned his lesson in that he goes to Nineveh, proclaims the word of the Lord, and the people repent. Totally unexpected. Your expectation would be that they would uh, persecute, that they would kill, that he would torture, that they would maim. They would do all of these kinds of things to, to Jonah. Instead, the people repent and God relents. And Jonah is not happy at all. Jonah didn't travel hundreds of miles in order to see mercy. In his own mind, he wants wrath. He wants judgment. He wants to see fire and brimstone. So he goes out of the city and he throws a little pity party to the east of the city. Now you might notice that it says there to the east. Why does it uh, mention, explicitly mention, that he went to the east of the city? And scholars are kind of divided over whether, uh, the, uh, how significant that particular fact is. Some people see a theological significance there. Oftentimes in Scripture you'll see the, uh, the use of the word east the direction east as a uh, kind of connotation or consequence of God's judgment. For, uh, for example, man is driven east from the, uh, the Garden of uh, Eden. Uh, men travel east in order to build the, uh, the Tower of Babel. Lot settles to the east of Abram near Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Israel will later be exiled to the east and, uh, and so forth. The problem with making too much of this as being sort of a theological point that uh, the author is making is that you also see a lot of good associated with the East in Scripture. For instance, Israel was delivered from Egypt and then they travel east to the Promised Land. The glory of the Lord enters the temple from the East in the book of Ezekiel. The return of Christ is described as lightning from the East and, uh, and so forth. So we probably shouldn't be too dogmatic about the theological significance of the East. Instead, it could just simply be a reflection of one of two things. A, it could just simply be a simple geographical detail. 
And so uh, archaeologists have kind of, as they've unearthed uh, ancient Nineveh, which is in modern-day uh, Iraq, as they've unearthed the city, uh, they have discovered that to the north and to the west there would have been these rivers, and, uh, and whereas to the east of the city there would have been hills. So it would have been a natural sort of place. If you were wanting to get a view of what's going to happen to the city, it would have been natural for you to go to the east because that's where the hills were. And so you could get kind of an exalted view overlooking the city. Or perhaps it's just simply a reflection of this idea that Jonah, who is coming from the west, Israel is to the west uh, from, from your direction, uh, Israel is coming from the, the west uh, to Nineveh. And so it should, could simply be a reflection of the fact that he gets to the city, he just walks through the city, and he just goes to the other side and he sits down. In other words, he doesn't kind of mill about. He doesn't walk around. He just simply does the bare minimum of obedience in proclaiming God's word. So whether the fact that he's sitting to the east is some sort of theological detail or not, whether it's just simply a, a geographical uh, detail, this is going to set the stage for the uh, introduction of the east wind, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Now we... As an audience, we're reading this book uh, by virtue of the fact that we have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the entire book of Jonah. We have God's response. We already know that, uh, that God is not going to rain down judgment on, uh, on Nineveh. We know that God has relented. Jonah doesn't quite have this insight yet. We know that he suspects as much. He suspects that God is going to relent. In fact, that is something that has uh, made him very angry as we've already seen in the text, that he is angry, he's bitter, he's resentful about the fact that God is showing grace and mercy to Nineveh, and yet he still holds out hope, maybe there will be judgment. Maybe this repentance is, is simply uh, temporary, and maybe God will relent of relenting in the first place and will actually rain down judgment. We know, by virtue of reading the entire scripture, that the fireworks show, so to speak, has been canceled, but Jonah didn't get the memo. He suspects it, but he still holds out hope that he can see some judgment. So he goes out of the city, far enough away that he won't kind of, uh, he won't kind of fall victim to any judgment that God rains down. He's not going to get any of the sparks on him, but close enough that he'd actually see what happens. And he fashions a little shelter for shade, and he sits down, and he waits, and he watches. Let's look in verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So now we come to the first of these divine appointments that we'll see in this uh, section. We'll actually see three of them. One in this verse, one in the next verse, one in the verse after that. So here the Lord appoints a plant to shade Jonah. In the next two verses, we'll see that God appoints a worm to destroy that plant, and then he appoints a scorching east wind as well. Earlier in the book, we talked about the fact that God had appointed, same word in, uh, in, in English, same word in Hebrew, that God had appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. We've talked about this before, but one of the major themes of the book of Jonah is the utter and complete sovereignty of God. If you're reading the book of Jonah and you do not see how sovereign God is, that he exercises authority and control and power over all things, then you've missed what is one of the most dominant themes of this book. That he controls the, the raging weather. He controls, as we just sang about, the tempestuous sea. He controls animals like the big fish and the worm. He controls plants like the one in this verse. He controls the wind 
like the one that we'll see in subsequent verses, he even controlled the response of the Ninevites in orchestrating their repentance. As we've said before, the book of Jonah isn't ultimately about Jonah. It isn't ultimately about a big fish. It isn't ultimately even about the Ninevites and their repentance. It's ultimately about the glory of a God who is sovereign over all things, the creator and sustainer of all things. And this isn't just a theme of the book of Jonah. This is a theme that we'll see throughout the Bible. This saturates the Bible. For example, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Is that the picture that you have of God? A God who does all that He pleases. Everything that He pleases. Or to say it another way, Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas, in all the deeps. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel 4, 35, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or speaking specifically of Jesus, of the Son of God, Colossians 1.17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Hebrews 1.3, also speaking of the Son, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He controls the wind. He controls the seas. He controls the rising and the setting of the sun. He controls the death of sparrows. He controls the rise and fall of nations, the roll of the dice, even the plans and desires of mankind. And the, this theological conviction, this idea, when we're confronted with this picture of God's utter and absolute sovereignty will have two effects on the human heart. It will either provide a profound sense of comfort and security, or it will produce fear and anger at a God who can do all things and yet doesn't always do what you want to make you happy. More on that a little bit later as we'll see that's exactly what's going on in Jonah's heart. So here, though God appoints a plant. Now you might ask the question, what kind of plant grows so quickly? Is this like the uh, magical beans that Jack gives? Uh, gets or uh, like uh, Professor Copperfield's Miracle Legumes or something uh, like that. What kind of plant could possibly grow up in a day to such a height and such a uh, uh, kind of a lushness that it might, uh, that's not probably a word, lushness, but uh, we'll use it, uh, that it might provide shelter for a grown man. But that's kind of like asking the question that we, uh, we asked whenever we got to the fish. What kind of fish could swallow a man and a man could live in its belly? And we said that's completely missing the point. The point of this is not that we should look for some sort of natural explanation to a supernatural event. The point of these things is it's, it's a miracle. There is no fish that can swallow a man, and yet that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. There is no plant that could grow up this quickly, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. There is no worm that could probably attack the plant with that degree of, uh, of ferocity in order to consume it in a day, and yet that doesn't mean 
that it didn't happen. Typically, when we ask these kinds of questions, what kind of plant was it? What kind of fish was it? What kind of worm was it? What we're trying to do is we're trying to circumvent the implication of God's supernatural intervention. We're trying to circumvent the idea that God is truly sovereign over these things. We feel like this story would be easier to believe for us if we could only identify a particular species of fish or a particular species of plant that this would make sense for, but that completely misses the point. The fish, the plant, the worm, the wind, each of those are appointed by God as a reflection of His power and authority. And notice also God's concern for Jonah. Notice that God appoints this plant to save him from his discomfort. He has this concern for Jonah. After all of this, after all of Jonah's fleeing, after all of Jonah's resistance, all of his recalcitrance, all of his resisting, all of his mumbling and groaning and complaining and grumbling, and all of that, all of the anger, all of the bitterness, God still cares for the prophet. Perhaps you can relate to that. I hope you can relate to that in spite of your fears, in spite of your failures, in spite of your sins, in spite of your struggles. God cares for you. He loves you. That's not at all a justification of your sin. Your sin is gross and egregious and you should repent of it, but it is a justification of the character of God that He is gracious and merciful. Not only is He sovereign, but He's gracious and merciful, which is another dominant theme that we see not only in the book of Jonah, but in the entire Scripture. That God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So God appoints a plant for Jonah to save him from his discomfort. Now there's a, a, a really fascinating wordplay here that we don't quite get in English but exists in, uh, in Hebrew. The Hebrew word that's translated as discomfort is actually used a handful of times in Jonah. It's five or six, I forget. Uh, but the first three of those occur in chapter 1. And that word that's translated here as discomfort in chapter 1, all three times it's used, it's actually translated as evil. So I think there's a word play that's going on uh, there. What's causing Jonah's discomfort? Well, in a sense, the sun is causing his discomfort. But in another sense, sin. Sin is actually at the root of his discomfort. In its life... The plant is the means uh, whereby God will save uh, Jonah from the discomfort of the heat. But in its death, as we'll see in the next verse, the plant is the means by which God would save Jonah, in a sense, from his heart. Because that's ultimately the problem. The ultimate problem is not the heat of the sun. It's not the temperature. It's the disposition of Jonah's heart. That there is still sin, there's still bitterness, there's still resentment, there's still racism or ethnocentrism or whatever it might be that he lacks mercy and compassion. And so the sun is going to shine upon Jonah. And not only is it going to heat his body, but it's going to expose his bitterness, his anger, his resentment, his lack of love, etc. And notice Jonah's response. It says that he's exceedingly glad because of the plant. He loves that little plant. He cherishes it. He treasures it. He clings to it. He couldn't care less about the Ninevites. And yet he loves this little plant. And that seems like that might be the perfect ending to the story. Nineveh's delivered. God is glorified. He's shown both His sovereignty and His mercy. Jonah is happy at this stage in the story. But there's one little problem. It's not happily ever after because Jonah still has bitterness and hatred toward Nineveh. So let's look at verse 7. 
When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. That's Jonah 4.7. See, now you see things start to take a turn for the worse for Jonah. God sends this, the hungry little uh, caterpillar or whatever it might be to attack the plant. So let's ask this question, why? Why is it that God sends this uh, worm to destroy the plant that Jonah so loves? Well, we hinted at it as we looked at the previous verse uh, that... Uh, that it, in a sense, is going to expose Jonah's sin. But let's dive deeper into that. Here's the reason. The reason that God appoints this worm to attack the plant is because God loves Jonah too much to allow him to be content with a little bit of shade while his heart is dark with sin. In other words, the worm is not mostly God's punishment. It's God's discipline. It's the means by which God disciples Jonah the means by which he teaches Jonah, the means by which he loves Jonah. It's kind of like the storm, right? The storm that we encounter in, uh, in chapter 1. The storm isn't fun. It isn't pleasant. It's not pleasant to be rocked back and forth in the storm. It's not pleasant to be thrown into the sea. And yet, it is the means by which God would expose Jonah's heart and draw him back to obedience because in obedience there is greater joy to be found. One of the, the most important truths for you to recognize, for you to comprehend, for your sanctification, for your discipleship, is the fact that God's discipline is not unkind. It's kind. It's loving. It's gracious. Would you listen carefully to Hebrews chapter 12? The author writes, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, discipline is God's grace to those He loves. So let me ask you this question this morning. Has God appointed a metaphorical worm in your life? Something to attack your comfort. Something to attack and expose your complacency. Is God disciplining you? If you're cherishing any sin, if you're relishing any sin, if you're treasuring any sin, if you're clinging to any sin, then He either has disciplined you or His discipline is coming. If you're a child of God, if He loves you, then He will be glorified in your sanctification. Either you will let go of sin freely, or He will break your hand so that you will have to drop your idol. He might expose your affair. He might expose your internet search history. He might ruin your health. He might bankrupt your finances. He might remove your job. And the reason He does so is because it's better to lose your job it's better to lose your money. It's better to lose your health. It's better to lose every temporal happiness. It's better to lose your life itself than it is for your heart to grow hard 
toward the things of God. In other words, Jesus is better than your sin. And therefore, whatever God does to detach your heart, your affections, your desires from your sin and attach them to Jesus is by, is by very definition gracious and loving and kind. God's discipline toward you is not a sign of His wrath. It's a sign of His love and mercy and grace and kindness toward you. So God appoints a worm to attack the plant and the plant withers and dies. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So without the plant, Jonah is susceptible to the elements, the sun beating down, the scorching wind. By the way, the Hebrew word for beating down right here is actually the same Hebrew word for attack that we saw in the previous verse. As the worm attacked the plant, so now the sun attacks Jonah. Again, you see this interesting wordplay throughout the book uh, of, uh, of Jonah that's sometimes lost in English. Now, if you're paying attention, you might ask this question. You might wonder, what happened to the booth? Remember, Jonah had gone out of the city and he had put up his little beach umbrella. He had built himself some sort of shelter, some sort of booth for shade. So what happens to it? If all of a sudden the plant dies and Jonah is exposed to the elements, what happened to the booth? Why is the death of the plant so significant if Jonah already had a shelter? Well, the, the text doesn't explicitly say what happens to the booth, but it's obvious that by this time it's either gone or it's relatively ineffective by the time the sun rises. I think the implication uh, that we're intended to see here, I think what's uh, implied is that the wind blows it away. Notice that the sun beats down on Jonah only after the wind blows uh, in the text. Uh, speaking of the wind... It's described here as the scorching east wind. And we talked about before the significance of the fact that Jonah sits to the east is disputed, but there is no dispute over the significance of an east wind that we see in the Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, an east wind in particular symbolizes God's power, His control, and His judgment. It preserves God's people. It destroys God's enemies. Consider just a, a handful of verses that talk about an east wind uh, in this sense. Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. Psalm 48, 7. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Hosea 13, 15. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Ezekiel 17.10, Behold, it is planted, will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? Wither away on the bed where it sprouted. So the east wind symbolizes God's sovereignty and power and authority. The, the, the point of the east wind isn't just to make Jonah uncomfortable. But rather the point is to use his discomfort to make him repentant, to make him humble, to make him contrite. That's the purpose of the plant. That's the purpose of the worm. That's the purpose of the sun. That's the purpose of the wind. That God is more confirm, concerned with Jonah's sanctification than he is with Jonah's happiness or comfort. And likewise for you and me, God is more concerned with your sanctification than he is with your happiness, than he is with your comfort. So the wind blows away the hut. The sun beats down on Jonah. He gets real hot. And what does he do? He despairs of life. 
He says, I just wish I was dead. That just seems so childish. Does anybody else read this and just think, it just sounds like a, a petulant child. It, it, it reminds me, uh, not to throw my daughter under the bus, but I'm going to throw my daughter under the bus. It reminds me of uh, my daughter when she just gets so upset that I won't let her lay on top of her newborn brother. She just has to do that, right? Or, or, or you know, various other examples that you can think of uh, from your life where your kid is so angry that you just won't let them drive the car. You won't let them play in the street or whatever uh, it might be. And so this sounds so childish. That's what it seems like Jonah's doing. And yet, let's not be too quick to throw Jonah under the bus as if we're better because I think in all of our hearts, we're a little bit more like Jonah than we would care to admit. We all have some sort of shelter that if removed, would tempt us to despair. Maybe it's the shade of a happy marriage. Maybe it's the shade or the shelter of financial security. Maybe it's the respect of our friends or a good job, or health, or healthy kids, or whatever it might be. But if that is blown away, if that's taken away, we would fall into a funk of bitterness and anger and fear and despair, just like Jonah. So the real problem here isn't mere heat. It's Jonah's heart. It's a fearful and proud heart. And now that God has Jonah's attention, he begins to speak. Jonah 4.9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So God speaks uh, by means of this rhetorical question, which is a, a question that you're given uh, not in order to really get an answer, but in order to make some sort of rhetorical point. The point is to make a point, not to get an answer. By the way, all of God's questions that we see throughout Scripture are rhetorical. God never lacks any information. God is never asking you a question because he's confused or he doesn't know something, anytime God asks a question throughout Scripture, the reason is because we lack some understanding. The reason that God asks a question is not because he doesn't know something, it's because you don't know something. You don't know your frailty, you don't know your finitude, you don't know your, uh, your sin, you don't know his sovereignty, you don't know his mercy, you don't know his authority, you don't know something. And so God uses rhetorical questions in order to expose that. But Jonah doesn't take the hint. Instead, he kind of takes the bait and he says, yes, I have a right to be angry. Now, notice that it says that Jonah is angry for the plant, but really we need to recognize what's going on here is that Jonah is angry for the plant, but he's really angry at God. You ever had a really bad day for whatever reason, and then later in the day, someone does something that's relatively insignificant and you just blow up at them? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kid. Maybe it's that person who cut you off in traffic. Whatever it is, that's kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And so you kind of overreact to that one particular thing because you're already upset about this dozen other things that happen throughout the day. That's kind of what's happening here in Jonah. Jo Jonah's real problem isn't that God destroyed the plant. Jonah's real problem is that God didn't destroy Nineveh. That's what Jonah's actually concerned about. That's what he's actually angry about. Now, I want to do a bit of theology here by talking about a concept that's called theodicy. Not the Odyssey, which is an epic uh, poem by Homer or an epic minivan by Honda or something like that, but theodicy, which is a vindication of divine sovereignty and goodness in view of the existence of evil. Theodicy is doing this. It's attempting to answer the question, how can God be both fully sovereign 
absolutely sovereign, utterly sovereign, and yet also absolutely, utterly, fully good. How can he be omnipotent, all-powerful, and also omnibenevolent, all good? That's what a theodicy is. In light of the existence of suffering and evil in the world, how can these two truths be true? When people suffer, there are two different temptations that spring up in our hearts. The first is the temptation to deny God's sovereignty. That we think these two truths can't both be true because I'm suffering so, or evil exists so, and so God can't both be all-powerful and all-good, so I'm going to therefore kind of uh, balk a little bit on His power. We deny His sovereignty. We neuter God of His power and authority. We imagine that He's, he's just kind of an innocent bystander in the events of our life. He's good. He's big. He's powerful. But He's not all-powerful. He's not quite big enough to overcome the obstacles to our joy. And what's the result of that denial of God's sovereignty? We give in. We give in to depression. We give in to despair. We give in to anger. I'm sorry, we give in to anxiety. We give in to fear. That's why we spend so much time at Parkway talking about the sovereignty of God to protect you from this temptation when the winds of suffering blow. And the winds of suffering will blow. And you can't let go of God's sovereignty. The second danger, and the one that we actually see Jonah in danger of doing here, the second temptation is that we deny the inherent goodness of God. We acknowledge, okay, yes, God is sovereign. He controls all things. He rules over all things. He has authority over all things, power over all things. And so therefore, if He's in control of all things, and all things includes this suffering that I'm going through, then God cannot be good. And so we negate that. We deny that. We neglect His goodness. And what's the result? Anger and bitterness and frustration. We get angry with God. Now, anger is this perfectly common and natural response to suffering, and yet it is always sinful to be angry at God. It is good to be angry at sin, but it is sin to be angry at God because God is always and only good. That's it. Let me just give you this pastoral word of encouragement. If you're here this morning and you are angry at God, maybe over the loss of a loved one, maybe over the loss of a job, maybe over some health prognosis or diagnosis, whatever it might be, if you're angry at God, it's not okay to be angry at God, but it's also not okay to just suppress that. That's what the human heart tends to do. We get angry at God and we just press it down. We just ignore it. We just igni- deny it. The only way to heal is to bring it into the light. To expose that sin, the sin of being angry at God, to expose that to the light by confessing it, by acknowledging it, by admitting it, by dragging that into the light so that it might heal. In other words, to repent. In other words, don't compound the sin of anger at God with the sin of hypocrisy and acting like you're not actually angry at God. Jonah is really angry at God. We saw that in the first half of the chapter. He's angry at God's grace and mercy toward Nineveh, which is really ironic because at this point of the story, when he's drowning in the sea, when he's in the belly of the fish, he's a big fan of God's grace and mercy. There's not a bigger fan of God's grace and mercy than Jonah when he's in the midst of the sea or in the midst of the fish. And yet when it comes to extending that mercy and grace to others, Jonah's not a big fan. 
He's angry about it. So now God makes explicit what has been implied, which is the self-righteous hypocrisy of the prophet. We see that in verses 10 through 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? A couple of weeks ago, uh, Casey, who's my wife, and I were both asleep. So obviously that was before my son was born because we haven't both been asleep (laughs) since then. Uh, But anyway, we're asleep, and all of a sudden my daughter starts crying. Now my daughter is three. She she tends to sleep through the night. So if she cries, that is a sign that something is wrong. Uh, And so I got up, and I go into her room, and I ask her what's wrong. And uh, she said that her, her baby doll's pacifier had fallen out of her mouth, and now her baby couldn't sleep. And I thought great. And I couldn't find the pacifier. And so I had to then convince her, logic works well with a three-year-old, I had to convince her that the baby could actually sleep if she just sucked on her own thumb. And so we just kind of jammed her thumb into her mouth, and that was kind of what we did. Now, uh, fast forward uh, to this past couple of weeks when I have a newborn son in the house. And my newborn son, whose name's Canon, by the way, like Canon of Scripture, uh, Canon is trying to sleep. And, uh, and Larkin runs into the room, and she is quiet and respectful. No, she's not any of that, right? She comes in the room and she's screaming as loud as she possibly can and she's banging together her toys and she's throwing stuff in uh, all around the room, potentially hitting, you know, Casey uh, or Larkin or whatever it, it might be. She's gotten a lot of spankings this past week. Um, but she doesn't care. She couldn't care less if, uh, if Cannon's able to sleep. She cares that her baby doll gets a good night's rest, but she couldn't care less about her actual baby brother. This inanimate baby. That's the irony. There's an irony that's going on there, and that's kind of what's going on in this passage. It's what's called an a fortiori argument, uh, which is uh, when you use an already established position to, use, to prove an even stronger uh, uh, example. If Larkin cared for this inanimate baby doll, how much more should she care for our actual human baby brother? Likewise, if Jonah pitied a plant, how much more should he pity a city? That's the point. And this entire argument only makes sense if you actually understand biblical taxonomy, which is the way that you arrange or systematize or order uh, relative uh, importance of various living things. In the Bible, there's this very clear taxonomy. There's this very clear arrangement. There's this very clear progression from plants, which are somewhat important, to animals, which are a little bit more important to humans. Animals are more valuable than plants, and humans are more valuable than animals. And that seems self-evident. That seems obvious. But unfortunately, that's not all that common today. Did you know that the website of PETA, which is the People for the Ethical Treatment of, uh, of Animals, uh, on their website, it says they have no position on the topic of abortion. This is an organization that wants to outlaw having pets. This is an organization that wants to outlaw the use of animals in films, and yet they have no position whatsoever on the murder of a person, right? Or I saw a, a poll. This is, this is interesting. I don't know how many people actually answer this truthfully versus how many people just want to be jerks, but uh, I saw this online poll, and it asked people anonymously, if you came upon a burning building, and inside that burning building was your personal pet or a complete stranger, a human stranger, Uh, which sounds strange, human stranger, but uh, your personal pet or a human stranger, which would you actually save? You have an opportunity to save one or the other, and 40% of the people said they would save their pet. 
Like 10% of the people said they would save their pet over like their brother, which I thought was fascinating as well. But uh, your pet is great, right? I love pets. I had pets growing up. I'd love to have a pet now. We don't. But if you're driving around a corner and all of a sudden in the, room, uh, in the road is a baby and a dog and a cat, you swerve to avoid the baby and you aim for the cat, right? Just a little cat joke for the fops. They, they like that. Uh, the, the point here is that one human life is of more value than a billion animals. And an animal is of more value than a plant. And thus, by logical implication, the one solitary plant that Jonah loved is less important than all of the hundreds of thousands of people and animals there in Nineveh. That's the a fortiori argument. If Jonah cared for the one plant, how much more should he care for this city of humans and animals? But he doesn't care about the city. In fact, Jonah has become the very thing that he hates. Why does he hate Nineveh? Because they're wicked and they're disobedient. But what has Jonah manifest throughout the book? Disobedience. He's run away from God. He's ignored God. He's neglected God. He's gotten angry at God. He's gotten bitter at God. He's gotten resentful toward God. He's become the very thing that he hated. Why else does he hate the Ninevites? Because they're cruel. They lack mercy. They lack compassion toward his fellow man. At the end of the book, what do you see of Jonah? He's cruel. He lacks mercy and compassion. God is showing mercy to the Ninevites, and Jonah is angry. He doesn't want them to get mercy. He doesn't think that they deserve mercy, which kind of implies that he thinks that he does deserve mercy. God has every right to judge Jonah. He has every right to judge the prophet. And yet time and time again, he shows patience, he shows grace, and he shows mercy. And what's Jonah's response? Time and time again, he complains about God's grace. He misses the irony that the very thing that he laments about God's character is the only thing that preserves his own life. So one of the things that we've been talking about over the past two months as we've been in the book of, uh, of Jonah is this implication that God's mercy would lead us to live lives of repentance. That, uh, that uh, to uh, paraphrase from Romans, that God's kindness leads us to repentance. We've talked about that a lot over the past couple of weeks. If we love and trust Christ, we must not be content with sin. We must not be complacent with sin. But we should be a people marked by a desire to put sin to death. Again, to, uh, to paraphrase from, uh, from Romans, that we would be willing to put to de- death the deeds of the flesh, to mortify sin, to live lives of repentance and be conformed to the image of Christ. But there's a second implication as a, uh, an implication of God's mercy that we see here in the book of Jonah as well. God's mercy should lead us to lives of repentance, but God's mercy should also lead us to lives of showing mercy. We should be a people marked by mercy. As Jesus says, we should be merciful as our heavenly Father is merciful. So this story of Jonah, what it does is kind of exposes in all of our hearts, not merely does it expose Jonah's heart, but exposes in all of our hearts this tendency uh, whereby we want to receive mercy, we want to boast in God's mercy, we want to exult in God's mercy when it comes to us, but we don't want to extend that mercy to others. We don't want to extend uh, mercy to others who we don't care about, who we don't love, who we don't have compassion and sympathy uh, toward. It's kind of like the, the parable that Jesus tells of the unforgiving servant, if you remember that, where this servant has been forgiven this huge debt that he owes. 
And yet he goes out and he demands that others repay this relatively small debt that they owe him. So not only are we called to embrace and appreciate the sovereignty and the mercy of God, but also to extend that mercy to others. That's what I want to talk about as we prepare our hearts for communion. So I want to pray, and then the men come forward to serve the elements, and then we'll talk a little bit about extending mercy to others in communion. So Father, we're grateful for the reality of your sovereignty this morning. That you are God who can do all things and does do all that you are pleased with. And so where our hearts do not resonate, where our hearts do not see your sovereignty as a good thing, would you expose that temptation, that sin in us? Father, we're grateful that you are a God who is overwhelmingly gracious and merciful and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. May we be a people who exult in that, who relish that, who cherish that, but also be a people who are willing to extend that to others for your glory and for their joy. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.